Welcome to Discovering Nutrition with Chronometer. I'm your host and community marketing manager, Lisa, and today we are thrilled to have on very special guest, Dr. Brandon Marcello. Dr. Marcello has over 25 years experience in the performance enhancement industry, driving forward thinking, cutting edge strategies, across a variety of human performance portfolios. He has extensive involvement in both the applied and research worlds and has implemented successful high-performance training programs for professional Olympic and collegiate athletes. As always, this podcast is for general purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including getting medical advice. The use of information from this podcast is at the user's own risk and is not to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Within two minutes of talking to Brandon, I had already learned a new hack for my Apple Watch to check out my own performance. So we can't wait to dive into this episode with you. We'll just jump right in. So my first question, and it's one that we get all the time with with chronometer because people really care about accuracy when they're tracking with chronometer and that's why they choose us is how reliable is data from a wearable obviously depending on the wearable that would make a difference for the reliability but as a general overview how reliable is data coming from a watch it depends on the data and it depends on yeah, we spoke about this briefly, uh, how you wear it. Right. right? There, are, there are actual instructions on how to wear it. Now, the instructions are vague, right? Not too tight, not too loose, whatever mm-hmm. that means. But where you wear it, the tightness in which you wear it can impact the the noise, if you will, and thus the accuracy, reliability of the device. I think the thing to remember is that just because a device is on the market, um, it doesn't mean it's 100% perfect because it's not going to be. So th- there is a lot of error inherently with these devices. And then also to take it to another level, if we're using heart rate, for example, you know, resting heart rate from a watch is pretty decent. But when you start to exercise and exert yourself, all of a sudden now the, the air starts to grow and grow and grow and grow right? Depending on the device. So, but we're talking watch. So yeah, that can be, can be a big issue. One of the interesting things that Brandon told me was, cause I wanted, to, you know, when we initially had our call, I was like, can you just give me like a, like, like a tip about, about the watch? And, and then he was like, how tight is it? Because I sent him my data uh, from my recovery heart rate and it was not very good. And he was like, how, how tight is that watch? So since then I have tightened my watch and I do get better data. So that's been, that's been illuminating. Can you talk to the recovery heart rate that you were telling me about on my Apple Watch? Because I know we got a ton of people that use the Apple Watch. What is what is that little feature that you told yeah. me about? Yeah, so it's like it's my favorite feature on the Apple Watch. And it's probably one of the only reasons why I use the Apple Watch for exercise. So I typically pair my Apple Watch with a, a heart rate strap that, you know, you wear around your chest so I can get better accuracy because those chest heart rate straps are much, much more accurate when it comes to exercise, monitoring exercise, heart rate. So 
um, when you complete a workout, whatever workout you choose, you know, outdoor walk, outdoor run, uh, cycle, yoga, whatever you choose, when you hit end on your watch, uh, the heart rate still continues to measure. And if you click on the little heart icon and scroll all the way down, you'll see this thing that says recovery. And with it, you'll have two numbers. You'll have, it'll say, give you a number and it'll say beats per minute after one minute. And then it'll give you right below, it'll give you another one that says beats per minute after two minutes. So it's essentially giving you your one minute and two minute heart rate recovery. And what that really is an indication of is the faster one can recover after exercise, the fitter or the more fit, fitter, more fit, Either or. <laughs> You're in better shape. Okay? They both work. <laughs> yeah. So the faster your heart rate drops after exercise, the better in shape you are from an aerobic standpoint. So your aerobic fitness is better. It's more enhanced. And will that vary from day to day? So for example, the, the one day I, after one minute, it was like 28 beats a minute. And then two days later, when I felt more rested and I had a break in between my running, it was 38 beats a minute after one minute. So is that something that's going to be changing based on how recovered you are or sleep or nutrition or tell me about that? 100%. That will all change. It can change based upon the type of exercise in which you're performing. It can change whether it, how intense your exercise is. Um, it will change based upon your hydration levels. It will change based upon your sleep levels, as you mentioned. It'll change based upon the outside environment. So if it's like, for instance, if it's a really, really hot day, and your body is still expending a lot of energy trying to thermoregulate, your heart rate is going to be a little bit higher than it normally would be and will not decrease as fast as it usually would in a, in a you know, like an air conditioned space or, you know, a, a less humid and cooler, you know, outside environment. So yeah, temperature, uh, environment, sleep, stress, right? There's a, a, a myriad of physiological variables which can change and alter that. The big one is that most of the research on heart rate recovery ties in with like cardiovascular risk, right? How healthy one's heart is. And what they've done is when they put people on these, these, these max treadmill tests, right? These stress tests where you run on a treadmill and every three minutes it increases in speed and grade, right? And you, you run till you cannot run anymore then they start the clock and they measure your two-minute heart rate recovery. And if it is lower, say, than like 12 beats per minute after one minute, then that shows that you potentially might be at risk for a cardiovascular event in, in the future, right? You may have some heart disease. And then there's a number for two-minute recovery as well. So that's where a lot of this comes from. But just in general, general population, when you're at home doing a workout, it's a great little spot check to see, hey, am I getting better? Am I becoming, am I getting better in shape? Am I responding well to the exercise stimulus that I'm trying to do? How long would it take for something like that to actually change? Because you and I were also talking about trends and how looking at trends can be one of the most valuable things about using a wearable. How quickly should I see progress if I'm running often? Or how do I know if I'm actually improving if it's so dependent on all of these different variables? 
Is well, that like a trend said, to look at? Yeah, like you said, watch the trend, right? Watch over time, you know, kind of like a stock market, right? It's up and down, but over time, hopefully it's heading in the upward direction. Hopefully, while these numbers of, of one minute and two minute heart rate recovery might change, um, hopefully it's get, <coughs> excuse me, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and growing and growing over time, right? Um, so typically, when it comes to endurance exercise, there is an initial change in blood plasma volume. So meaning you get more water in your blood, okay? The long-term effects, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, you'll start to see these changes of more capillaries in your body, which means blood gets to the tissues easier. You will see changes in your heart anatomy, right? So your chambers will get bigger. You'll also have more red blood cells. You'll also have more mitochondria. So what that means is you have better ability to work aerobically. So all of these things put together in one giant bowl gives you an increased endurance or increased fitness overall. So you were saying that that's about seven to eight weeks. What happens if somebody, okay, I'm going to use myself as an example. I run consistently throughout the year, but I certainly, we get a lot of snow in Revelstoke and I certainly run a lot more in, you know, the spring, summer, fall than I do in the winter. So in the winter, I, my run volume drops down to, you know, two or three days. Am I able to maintain my cardio that way or because I'm doing less because I normally run, you know, six to seven days a week, am, am I able to, ma to maintain or am I going to lose some because my training volume has gone down? Uh, you know, it, 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 if, if the primary stimulus is still there, it doesn't have to be every day. You should be in a good, good spot. The, the issue is <clears throat> when you do nothing, right? You have to shut it down for an extended period of time you can lose a significant amount of those adaptations in doing absolutely nothing for 10 days. You can lose up to 80% of those adaptations in 10 days by doing zero, right? Now that's, that's zero. Okay. We do get up, we do move around. Right. So, so that's the downside. We tend to lose our fitness very, very fast, but on the other hand, we tend to lose our strength very, very slowly. So people are going on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> that one's for you guys. Get out to the gym at least once when you're on vacation. Yeah, I mean, was, when people I, go on vacation, they're walking around, right? I mean, so yeah. there is some sort of stimulus there that is present, right? So you got to remember, this is when I say nothing. I mean, like you're bedridden for 10 days. Okay. That's good to know because I always am able to like jump back into things fairly quickly. And I'm like, yeah, your cardio is not too bad, but I'd have to look at the, the my heart rate trends and that kind of thing to see if I just feel good or if I actually am good. Yeah. One of the things that's really emerged lately that everyone in the tracking space, I think is using is heart rate variability or HRV from what I understand. And you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the number that a lot of wearables are using to determine someone's readiness. You know, I've, I've worn the aura ring for years and every morning based on several factors, I'm assuming my sleep and my HRV, it's telling me how hard I should send it. Basically. I don't listen to that. But maybe I should. Can can you speak to heart rate variability and, and why people should look at that or should people not look at it at all because it's not accurate? The thing to so heart rate variability is essentially when your heart beats, there is an irregularity to that heartbeat, right? It's not like every second there's a beat, right? If you have if you're if you beat 60 times in a minute, 
It's not like it's every second. There is a little bit of difference there. Some beats are a little bit longer. Some beats are going to be a little bit shorter. Uh, they do vary. There is an, an, an ebb and flow to these heart rates. And that variability between the beats is what makes up this thing called heart rate variability. What people have been associating it with in this, uh, with the term readiness is it's a me they believe or it's said that it's a measurement of stress. More specifically, it's the stress of your autonomic nervous system. So what the autonomic nervous system is, it's your automatic nervous system. And that's broken up into two divisions. You have a sympathetic side, which is this fight or flight, which is like if a tiger jumps out at you and you get really scared, right? Pupils dilate, your heartbeat increases, you know, you get a peach pit in your stomach. All of these, you know, you get maybe cold sweat, something like that. That is the, the sympathetic side. The parasympathetic side, which is the other division of the autonomic nervous system, is this what they call the rest and digest. It's where you and I are right now, right? Everything's calm. Our heart rate hopefully is low. Our blood pressure is low. You know, blood flow is going to all of the organs, especially the digestive system to digest. Me, I just had like a smoothie. So I'm digesting that, those sides. And what we happen to have is when we are more stressed, we become out of balance, more in favor of the sympathetic side. So that means our heart rate is increased, our blood pressure increases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of things can impact that balance between the two, right? Sleep, stress, inflammation, you know, whatever, even exercise, right? So when people look at this HRV number, they're saying, wow, if my heart rate variability is a lower number, 20, 30, 40, whatever, making those numbers up, um, that means I'm probably more stressed. If it's higher, 80, 90, 100, then I'm perhaps less stressed from an autonomic nervous system standpoint. The danger with that number is that it's a very noisy and very dirty and very muddled number. It is not quite as cut and dry as in sympathetic, parasympathetic, because all of these things, all of different organ systems are impacted differently by the nervous system at different times. So I might have more sympathetic tones at my heart, but I may have also more parasympathetic tone at my digestive system. It's not like an all or none. It's not a light switch. And this is the number in which I would look at trends, right? To say, okay, so when I got up this morning, I looked at my aura ring as well. And I was, I think I was like 79, my HRV. Okay. That's okay for me. That's probably right around the average. I bounce anywhere between 77 and like 90. Like I live in there. Sometimes it drops a little bit lower. Uh, sometimes it drops significantly lower, but then I try to add context to that number. Why did that number drop? Right. Is it because I traveled? Is it because I didn't get much sleep? Is it because I had a late dinner? Is it because I had some alcohol and had two glasses of, you know, Chianti last night? Is it because I, you know, I'm, I'm stressed because of a work deadline? Whatever the answer is, that's when you kind of go back and look at it and say, okay, why is that number low? If you can unpack that and say, my aura ring might say, Brandon, you shouldn't be working out today. You're not ready. But if working out for me or you, is like your happy place where you can de-stress and not think about anything, the last thing you need to do is not work out, right? That's probably the first thing you should do. So the, you really have to unpack that heart rate variability number. It's not as clean cut as it is. 
It's an interesting number. It's one that I would watch the trends and then start to try and add context to your data. And I don't know if I just made things more confusing, but yeah. I, I don't think that you did. I think that was great. Okay. It, from what I understand though, it's pretty individualistic because I was talking about this with one of our staff members yesterday and she She's like, my HRV number, because we both wear the aura ring, she was like, mine doesn't get much above like 60. And I was like, oh boy. So I looked at mine and mine, mine is typically over a hundred all the time. Like, like from like, you know, I think it's on average from 85 to like 130, like mine's going everywhere. So is it like my cardio is that much better than this person's because mine's higher or is it simply like because we're different people? It is because you're different people. It's very individual. So like I told you, mine is like somewhere between 77 and 93. Mm -hmm. My wife's every single morning is 255 every morning, right? If she has a cold, it might drop to 240, 240. But then she's back up at 255. What does that mean? She can live forever probably. But what it, <laughs> what it means is she already has a very low resting heart rate, right? Yes. Um, and she she's exercises all the time. So any variance in that low heart rate is going to be magnified. So heart rate variability is a very individual number. You should not compare it to anybody else. Yeah, you should watch your own trends over time. You know, it's influenced by fitness. It's influenced by stress and how you metabolize stress. And it's also influenced by your genetics and how well you chose your mom and dad, right? So all of those things play into uh, your, your HRV number and where that's going to live. Yes, there are things that can increase it, right? Meditation, we know will increase it over time. Exercise will increase it over time. Mindfulness will increase it over time, right? All of these things that help you offload or metabolize stress will help with that. Decreasing inflammation will increase heart rate variability over time, right? So yeah, it's a very individualized number that's influenced by a lot of things. You also highlighted something that I really appreciated. When I was wearing the Aura ring, it would tell me a readiness score. And I know that other other wearables use like body batteries and that kind of terminology. But basically, it's telling you how much energy you should have to do your exercise. And I'm sure that there are people that live and die by that number. We should get into that after. But for me, it was never like I never really listened to what it was telling me my readiness was. For the reasons that you mentioned, you know, running for me is an ultimate therapy outlet. I, I do it mostly because of how I feel after I get that runner's high. and <laughs> I could take over the world. Uh, so I love that. I also obviously enjoy the physical benefits. I like knowing that my, my, my heart is getting stronger and that kind of thing. But if I lived by my readiness score or if I listened when it was like, take it easy today, I would never exercise. So I really like that, that you said that it's if, if you want to run, then, then you should run. Is that going to take a toll? If, if I keep pushing through that, even though basically this watch is telling me that I shouldn't be doing it for like consecutive days, is that eventually going to take a toll on my energy? Should I be throwing in a rest day? What are your thoughts? You should be throwing in a rest day here and there, right? I, I think the thing to remember when it comes to training and recovery is that, you know, recovery, there, there's 
in order to really achieve sustainable high performance, you need to optimize performance in four domains, the physical domain, the cognitive, the social, and the emotional. And there is no hierarchy to, to, to those four domains, right? And they're all interconnected. So, you know, how we feel physically impacts how we feel cognitively, impacts our socially, social aspects and how we feel emotionally. How we uh, feel cognitively can impact our, our physical domain. It can impact our emotional domain, our, our ability to socialize. So all of these things are intertwined. And knowing thyself is the first step in understanding when I need a day off or what I need to do on that day off, right? If I am pushing physically, 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 and I'm getting these warning lights, right? Like these, you know, check engine lights every day for three weeks, I probably should check in with myself and see what bucket needs to be filled, right? Maybe it is taking a day off from exercise, or maybe it's doing a different type of exercise, right? If you're somebody that needs to exercise every day, that's fine, but maybe change the method of exercise. Or when I was working with one of our Olympians here in the United States, she had this thing where she had to work out every single day. I have to work out every day, Brandon, every day. I'm like, okay, I get that. That's your... For you to be, right? So what I did was I, okay, we're going to work Monday morning and we worked out Monday morning. And I said, we're going to work out Tuesday night was our next Mm -hmm. workout. So she got what she wanted, which was to work out every single day. And I got what I wanted. I got 36 hours of rest for her. I never even considered doing it that way, which seems so obvious now, but I am one of those people. I have to move. I don't have a television in my house because I figure that's just taking time away from, you know, my exercise. But really, I just love being outside. But I've never structured it like a morning workout and then an evening workout the subsequent day. You just you just kind of <laughs> blew my mind there. <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm going to do now. I just kind of run whenever I feel like it. You know, I'm not... I never tell myself I ever have to run. It's just like, it's so part of me. I've done it forever that I'm just like, I'm just going to head out and run whenever. So take my dog out and that kind of thing. It's been, it's just fun, which is for people are like, I don't know how running is fun for you, but it really is. You did touch on something else that I think is really interesting. And that is how alcohol affects your, your metrics. So I very rarely drink. I will have maybe an alcoholic beverage once a year. It's just not common for me. And a lot of that is, even though I'm not an athlete is, is because of performance. Like I, I don't want to feel bad the next day. And I, on days that I have had alcohol, I've looked at my, you know, my, my stats and it's definitely, my heart rate's higher. My sleep quality was absolutely in the garbage. And for me, that's like really all I need to, to not want to drink. My personality is also just quite extroverted normally. So I don't need anything to get me out of my shell. That's for sure. How does alcohol affect our bodies? There, there is a significant cost of doing business when we consume alcohol. Now, there are some caveats to this, right? There is an enormous social aspect in some circles to consuming alcohol. Absolutely. Um, I do not drink a lot of alcohol at all. I probably have maybe one a month, maybe, maybe. So 
I also, I understand that like, like I said, like there is a social aspect to it. You can go out with friends and have a glass of wine and the impact's going to be very, very minimal, right? The closer I have that glass of wine to bed, the impact's going to be a little bit greater from a nighttime physiology standpoint, right? Um, so personally, you know, when it comes to caffeine and when it comes to alcohol, I try not to do any of that past like two o'clock in the afternoon, right? Like on a weekend. Sometimes though, if I go out to dinner, I'll have a glass of wine and, and that's it. And I'll drink it very slow and take my time. So I try to minimize and mitigate the impact as much as possible, right? So those are things that I put in my mind, right? Because that's just me, just kind of like that, how you do it, because that's just you, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the cost of doing business, if we start to have more than one glass of wine, one alcoholic beverage, etc., cetera, um, is that you start to impact your sleep. Specifically, you skip over the regenerative stages of sleep. Yes, you might not wake up all night. Yes, you might have thought that you slept soundly. However, you have skipped over some of those beneficial stages. So it's essentially junk sleep, right? It's not beneficial at all from that standpoint. There are alcohol has a very strong effect on tissue and muscle tissue and connective tissue and can impact that. And if that's what's running everything, right? If we're trying to be high performing individuals and we are putting our connective tissue we are not stacking the odds in our favor of a successful performance, then, you know, we're, we're kind of testing the odds there. Right. So there's a dehydration aspect. There's a rest aspect. There's a stress aspect to alcohol. There's, like I said, the tissue piece of it. So there's, there's just a lot of downside to it. Now, again, is there a net positive? Maybe, right. I kind of equate it to like food, right? There are comfort foods. Comfort foods might be some of the most unhealthy foods possible, right? If we look at it in the physical domain, but if we look at it from a social and emotional domain, they're called comfort foods for a reason. So if I'm very stressed out and I go and have, I don't know, eggplant Parmesan and a small glass of wine, that's comforting to me, mm-hmm. right? So I was filling my emotional bucket and my cognitive bucket. And I probably, yeah, my physical probably went down a little bit, but I probably had a net positive because of all those other, all the other boats kind of rose, right? It's very convoluted. It's not a very easy equation to figure out, but it's important to, to realize that there is more to performance than just the physical domain. Sometimes we can elevate our physical performance through other methods, right? And and indulging in some of those things from time to time. I believe moderation is absolutely key. That's been that's been the key for for my success over the last couple of years. I I feel like I have an abundance of energy. (laughs) And I think it stems from that. What if, if someone's having more than one alcoholic beverage every day, you know, like someone has a stressful job and that's how they unwind. Like you said, it's kind of like a comfort food for them. Can you speak to like daily consumption of alcohol? Like, because if you're, if, if one or two drinks is, is, you know, decreasing your sleep quality and you're having alcohol every night, because that is fairly common for a lot of people, mm-hmm. what long-term effects does, does that have if you're never really getting great rest or yeah, does your body just adapt? No, you don't adapt, right? You don't, you don't, you, you, you cannot adapt. You cannot get used to like humans think they can, right? That's their rationale, right? 
is like, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm really, I got really good at, you know, performing on four hours of sleep. You can't do that. Right. That's like saying, I'm going to go get really good at drinking and driving. So I'm going to drink every night in practice. You just, you just can't do that. That's not how it works. Again, there's a cost of doing business here, right? And if you have to rely on alcohol every night to wind you down or to push you parasympathetically because your job is so heavily sympathetic, there's a lot of other things you can do, Mm -hmm. right? We spoke about exercise. We spoke about um, yoga, right? Meditation, mindfulness. Um, If you listen to, you know, late night television hosts, you know, and you ask them, what is, what do you do for a living? They will tell you my job is to get people to forget about their problems for one hour, right? So it's to unplug and disconnect and forget about all those things. And there's a lot of things you can do to help unload and help metabolize that stress from the day aside from, from drinking alcohol, right? Because like, you know, comfort foods are okay, but it's not good every day, right? If my comfort food is a donut, that doesn't mean I have carte blanche to have 12 donuts every single day because I lead such a stressful life, right? right. There's, that's a problem there. So it, it's, it goes back to your moderation comment, right? Mm-hmm. Everything in moderation. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly relying on alcohol, relying on something to help you get to sleep and wind down every night, aside from some of those other things I mentioned, is, is not conducive to high performance and a healthy lifestyle. It can be challenging for me. It's not because I'm, I've always really just not consumed alcohol. So for me, it's just, it is easy in social situations to be like, I'm, I actually don't drink, but, but for sure, a lot of people that is where they get, you know, their, their social quality. So I like, I like that you're talking about different buckets and satisfying different buckets because I'm always, I think that I live in my, in my physical domain more more than other ones. So should try to be a little bit more well-balanced. We also talked about sleep and this Mm -hmm. one is so interesting for me because the, the thing that I did when I got my aura ring, because I've had it for years and years is I started noticing the impact of sleep quality on every facet of my life. It affects me so deeply. I am considerably more fatigued, less energetic, more irritable. You know, like if I, if I don't get seven to eight hours of sleep, then I don't feel like myself, quite frankly. And then when I talk to people, because I get teased about this quite a bit, because I like set up my sleep environment and I, I like things a certain way. <laughs> people are like, you're a nerd, but I just really want to take care of myself. You said that if people are continually not getting sleep, they might, they might just like kind of think that they're adapting, but they're actually not. Do we all need seven to eight hours of sleep or can some people, you know, get five and feel alive and still be really healthy? The eight hours of sleep is usually a standard number because most people around 70% of the population need between six or seven to nine hours. There are, it's that bell curve, right? Some people are need a little bit more. Some people could probably get by with a little less. There's a, a colleague of mine, he passed away a couple of years ago, but his name was Dr. William DeMent. And Bill DeMent was considered the father of sleep medicine. He discovered REM. He's, he, okay. he was that, he's that good, right? Okay. He was, that guy, right? <laughs> that, he was like 91 when he passed away. And he and I uh, were colleagues at Stanford together. 
and we partnered on some research as well. And he was telling me one time when I was over at his house, he was saying, you know, Brandon, he goes, I spent the early part, earliest part of my career traveling all around the globe, finding these people that said they only slept like three hours a night and had these really high functioning lives. And I said, what did you find out? He goes, I found out it was the biggest waste of time and money in my entire career. He goes that we're just humans are really bad at understanding how much sleep they get when they're tired and how much sleep they need. Right. And what's interesting is some of the research that we did and he did at the Stanford Sleep Center, what they would do is they would do these sleep satiation studies where they would ask people before the study, how much sleep do you need? And people might say, oh, I need six hours a night. And then after they study, when they pay back all this sleep debt, they would ask them again, how much sleep do you need? And typically, almost everybody underestimated by two hours how much sleep they needed. So those that originally said they needed six hours came in and said they needed eight. Those that needed seven, they thought, sure, I need seven, needed nine, right? I know personally, I need nine. I don't get nine, but I know I need nine, right? Because I do become irritable, anxious. You know, you make more mistakes. You're not as cognitively sharp. But like we were talking about, we renorm to that fatigue, right? It's kind of like the example I always use is like looking at a picture of yourself from 10 years ago. You're like, whoa, I look really young there, right? But because we wake up and renorm ourselves every morning when we look in the mirror, we don't see those small, tiny changes in aging that take place on a daily basis. We renorm ourselves. Not only till we look at a picture from 10 years ago, do we like see that big difference? Same thing with sleep. We continually get, you know, five hours of sleep a night and we, we kind of renorm ourselves to that fatigue that occurs and builds up over time. So we think we are high functioning individuals, but in actuality, we're not. And people oftentimes don't even know how good they can feel if they just got more sleep. I'm biased because I'm all about sleep. Is sleep something that you can catch up on or once it's gone, it's gone? Like does napping have an effect and, you know, make, make your heart rate lower or that, that kind of thing? So, yes, yeah, sleep, you can catch up on sleep. So that's paying back your sleep debt. And the sleep debt ceiling, we believe, is right around 50 hours. So it, you can pay back that 50 hours over time. It takes time, right? It's more than just a weekend of sleeping in. But yeah, you can pay it back. Naps will help contribute to that payback time. The problem with naps, it's not really a problem. The only time I would be wary of a nap is it interferes with, if it interferes with your ability to get a good night's rest. Right. So, you know, taking a nap like at eight at night, I wouldn't recommend Right. Because right. then you might wake up at 930 and be like, wow, I can't get to sleep. Right. So, yeah. So the, you can pay it back. But once the tank is full, you can't store it. I wish I could. I really wish I could. There's sometimes I just love to be up for 48 hours straight just doing an activity. That'd be amazing. I listen to my body so much more now, I, which is interesting because I also rely on, on the data. I've, I've actually changed a little bit because before the first thing I would do when I would wake up would be to look at the, like what the data is presenting and it would kind of like help me determine how I felt. And now I just more, I don't look at it right away. I assess how I feel when I wake up. Do I feel rested? And then at some point during the day, like 
you know, my curiosity is, is peaked and I'll, I'll go, I'll go have a look at it, but I'm not typically a napper, but if I do want to nap, I'm like, my body is telling me I need some rest. So I'll get some, some shut eye in that case. This month at Chronometer, we're discussing energy. This is one of our most interesting topics, I think, because we are always getting questions about energy. And, and when I was younger, I thought that it was like, for me, this infinite resource and it's, it's not at all. <laughs> I've definitely realized in the last couple of years that it's actually pre- pretty finite. But I have noticed ways that I can optimize it. And obviously working at Chronometer, I track my diet. So I'm getting all my micronutrients and macronutrients and that kind of thing. In your work, have you noticed ways that people can optimize their energy? Like we did talk about getting adequate sleep and, and not consuming a lot of alcohol. What things can people be doing today or building towards today that's going to give them more energy and make them feel vital and, and thrive and that kind of thing? Well, I think we touched on it, but I don't think we went really into enough, enough depth on it. And we mentioned that sleep gives you energy. And I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, the, our brain's preferential fuel is going to be glucose. Yes, I know it can run on ketones and those types of things. I get that, right? But, but preferentially, the brain likes glucose. And glucose typically comes from carbohydrates, right? Now, there's many types of carbohydrates, but that's a whole nother discussion, right? Carbohydrate, people say like, oh, I'm not eating any carbohydrates. I'm like, you're not eating any vegetables? They're like, no, mm-hmm. I'm eating vegetables. I'm like, well, then you're eating carbohydrates, right? So there's, there's important things to unpack there. But when we are sleep deprived, we actually impair our carbohydrate metabolism. So our carbohydrate metabolism does is not functioning as optimally as it could. As a result, when we are sleep deprived, we gravitate toward highly processed junk foods that will spike our glucose quickly, right? That's a dangerous thing, right? So one, so number one on my list is sleep, right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing to give you more energy. Two, hydration. Hydration is enormous, right? If we, de- if our, if we dehydrate by just a small amount, 3%, our cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone, gets elevated, right? Stress we know zaps us, right? It does not make us feel good. So like sleep hydration, and then obviously optimizing nutrition and eat stuff that will sustain us throughout the day and provide us with energy, right? That's that's kind of the key. So many times we rely on other things to give us energy, right? Mm-hmm. So I mentioned the sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? Many times the world runs on caffeine, right? Yeah. So people will consume energy drinks and caffeine. Caffeine is a sympathomimetic drug, meaning it mimics the sympathetic nervous system. That's why it's called sympathomimetic. Um, so it gives you the, the feeling of energy. Same thing with like these energy drinks that have like all these crazy high amounts of B vitamins, like 8,000% of B vitamins. B vitamins do not give you energy. Vitamins do not give you energy, but they play an important role in the energy pathways as cofactors. So you can consume a lot of B vitamins. All of a sudden you feel like alive right? But that is not essentially what is happening there. So what are the things? Sleep is an anchor to energy, hydration, ideal nutrition, uh, exercise, 
right? That's a big one. Being able to, again, meditation, right? So much literature is out there on people's, uh, on meditation and its impact on providing people energy and sustainment throughout a day. Like these things have been time tested for thousands of years, but we as a society seem to ignore these because we say we don't have time. I don't have time to meditate, right? If you actually meditated, you probably would be more productive, have more energy and probably could get more done in a smaller and truncated amount of time. So, you know, these things are well worth doing to provide you with, with that, like that energy, like you mentioned. I don't meditate. Obviously I should start if there's, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of science to meditation for me. Sitting still is, is the challenge. So I'm, I'm curious about this. Can you, can you make some recommendations? Because what, what I like doing as, as the podcast host here is I really like an action item from every guest that I've had because we've had amazing people lined up out of the gate. And last month I told Rob Wolf about hydration and I was like, I got to start salting my food. So I have. And I have way more energy, which is interesting because I would have never equated salt to to being hydrated. The opposite. Tell me about meditation and what I should do, Brandon. So similar to this, you use the aura ring. You've used it for years, years. You have a lot of comfort there. If you open your aura app and go to the bottom right hand corner, there's a little plus and there's and you can click on unguided session. And you can click on a five-minute unguided meditation session and pick uh, whatever type of sound you want in the background, like a water flow or like thunderstorms or whatever you choose to. And the idea is just to try and be in the present moment, okay? That's all meditation is, is just being in the present. And most meditation anchors it around the breath and just follow your breath. All you have to do is follow your breath. And then when your mind gets distracted, note it, say I'm being distracted and go back to following your breath because your mind's going to be distracted. That's okay, right? Mm-hmm. We're not Buddhist monks, right? Uh, sitting there almost in, a, almost in a state of Zen for three hours thinking about nothing. That's not what we're trying to accomplish. We're just trying to take a break, be mindful, be present, follow our breath. And then over time, just like endurance exercise or strength exercise or anything else, it becomes easier, right? And doing these five-minute check-ins from time to time, if that's all you can do, even one minute is fine. Um, four cycles of breath, even that is, mm-hmm. is, is fine to do. But take some time to unplug, be mindful, be in the moment, and then that's it and be on your way. That's going to be my, my next thing. I'm going to, I'm going to commit to meditating and I'm going to see how I feel because you, you hit it on the head. I just, I feel like sometimes like I'm a dog chasing a squirrel. I'm like, okay. Cause I, I have good intentions towards, you know, being, being mindful and taking a moment. And then, and then all of a sudden I'm like, what am I supposed to be thinking about right now? Like, is nothingness black? And it's just this, this giant cycle in my head. I'm like, that was not effective at all. Like you accomplished nothing. So I'll definitely have to have to try that. One of the, one of the questions that I have. So with chronometer, basically what happens is people register for an account and then we like they put in all of their unique metrics, you know, like their height, their weight, their their sex, all of that. 
And then it, it spits out a BMR, which is basal metam- metabolic rate, sorry. And then we ask them if they want to like sync a wearable or that kind of thing. And then some people, when they, when they choose yes, then they're going to connect like any of their devices. And then basically like some people will then change their diet based on their exercise. And what I mean is if I had a weight loss goal and I wanted to lose 10 pounds and I connected my device and it's telling me like, oh, you burnt like 3000 calories and then I'm eating more calories because I technically had that in the bank. Like how, like should people be doing that or should people be adjusting what they're eating to what their wearable is telling? Because I know I was talking to one of, one of our partners, Don Saladino, and he's like, cause he, he works with, with Aura as well. And, and he's like, yeah, I use it for cardio, but I don't use it for weight training. Cause you're not actually supposed to, I know that, you know, Don too, that's how we met and he's great. So when people are trying to make these decisions about how many calories they should eat and they're listening to their wearable, but it's not tracking like their weight training, like how does how does that work? I know that was yeah. a lot, but <laughs> well, no, no. It, we, this is the thing that people have to remember: is all of these things are based on assumption, right? And when you start stacking assumption on assumption on assumption, then all of a sudden, there's a lot of places that things can go wrong, right? So we have to remember that when I do, so like I went on a run, not a run. I went on a walk this morning, right before our, our podcast. And if I look at it, it's telling me that I burn, let's see, 2.41 miles, 229 calories. That is an assumption based upon my height, like you mentioned, my weight, and then the, the, the amount of metabolic activity, which I did, right? The other assumption is the calories in piece is that they are saying like, I threw a medium sized banana, frozen banana in my smoothie this morning. A medium-sized banana is 80 calories. How do they know that? Well, they took a bunch of what they said thought was medium-sized bananas. They put them in a bomb calorimeter. They blew them up and they measured the amount of energy it created to change one one gram of water, one degree centigrade, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm making an assumption that that banana was 80 calories. The other assumption I'm making is that I'm pulling 80 calories from that banana. So depending on my gut microbiome, depending on all of those factors, I might pull 85. You might pull 72. Don might pull 81 and a half, right? That's the problem. That's why that's what's so hard sometimes that it, yes, in the physics world, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. 100%. But what we're forgetting is that how we extrapolate calories and how we extrapolate food is different on an individual basis. And if we keep stacking those assumptions, that can lead us down a road of of uncertainty and error. And and that's kind of the danger with these wearables, right? And and then especially if you're not using it to track everything, now you're making other assumptions as well. So it just can be a dangerous endeavor to do, to rely on technology to, let's just put it this way, technology shouldn't give you the answer. It should help allow you to make better decisions, right? It's kind of like a weather report. There's an 80% chance of rain today. It's not telling me to get an umbrella or put on a raincoat. 
it's just telling me there's an 80% chance. And now it's my, my job to make the decision. Do I want to take an umbrella? Do I not? Like maybe 80 is not enough for me. Maybe right. you, like your threshold is 70, 70 or above. I'm always taking an umbrella. Maybe me, it's like 90, right? right. And everybody's air budget is going to be different. It's just all part of the decision-making process. At the beginning of the podcast, you touched on the fact that you wear a chest strap. If someone is looking to really get this data as dialed as possible, you would recommend getting a chest strap? I would recommend a chest strap. And depending on the type of exercise you do, the ch different brand might be better, right? So there's like the two leaders in the industry are pretty much going to be Polar and Garmin. You know, if you're if you're comfortable with the Garmin ecosystem, use that. If you're comfortable with the Polar ecosystem, do that. Just know that probably Garmin is going to perform better in a water environment. And if you swim in like oceans and things like that, definitely go Garmin. Polar does not do well in, in salt water. It does okay in pool water, right? Um, if you do swimming mostly, they have what's called the Polar Verity, which actually is goes on your temple and connects right with your goggles that's going to give you really good fidelity if you're in a pool, right? And you don't want to wear a chest strap. So like there are options depending on like what environment do you train the most? If you're just going out and run, Polar's fine, Garmin's fine, doesn't matter. If I'm swimming in pool, I might go Verity, right? Or if I run and swim in a pool, maybe I'm just going to go with a Garmin. Then I only have to have one device, right? It depends on how really, what do you want? What's you, what, how much do you want to invest in, in wearable technology and you want to keep track of two wearables or one. And then again, if I'm swimming in salt water, then I'll probably go with the Garmin as well. Do you think that, because I don't, I don't really ever know what I'm training for. I just like feeling really good. Do you think that I should be changing because one of the, the podcasters I listen to and just love, and I've said this a billion times, but his name is, is Nick bear. And he definitely trains, you know, higher intensity, some days, lower intensity, others. Should I be looking at any data to, to determine which day I should be working harder or working on sprints as opposed to distance? Or is that just kind of how I feel as well? Uh, so this is it. So in general, you could, if you're just training just in general for general health and well-being, feel free to mix it up as much as you want. If we're talking specifically to the individual, and this is unpacking, it's going to open up a whole nother, another box here, is that we're talking about training women, that's another box. Because what we're talking about here is, are we training around the menstrual cycle, right? Because there are certain times during the menstrual cycle in which we want to train strength and which we want to train cardio, which we want to stay away from other types of movements, right? Because of... of a female's physiology provides them with what I call a sex advantage because we know exactly what type of exercise they're going to be better at doing. So for instance, like right around day 14, which is ovulation, females have a spike in testosterone. That's a great time to be training strength, right? Because you have that testosterone peak. Guys, we don't know that. So it's a distinct sex advantage for women to say, hey, this is when we need to train this. You know, mid-luteal phase, we should be training that. Late follicular phase, here's what we should be training here. So we can actually look, we can map out your menstrual cycle and say, yeah, probably here's when you should be training cardio because, you know, you're able to mobilize fat better and you're able to tap into glucose better, right? 
here's when we want to do more strength training. Here's where maybe we want to do kind of like low threshold training. So I know, again, I'm just trying to just gave you a I big had, I had no there. idea. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool stuff, right? That something which is often taboo to talk about, mm-hmm. right? But if we overlay that with your training, like this is the example I use. If you knew that your bank account yielded like 30% interest <laughs> in this day, wouldn't you put all your money in that bank account? I, I would, I would. Same thing, right? If I know that this is a great time to train strength because I'm going to get great results, then shoot, let's train strength that day, right? For me, I have an IUD. Uh, I have a hormonal IUD, so I have no idea. I'd be, I'd be in the dark as well. Changes so, everything. Changes everything. It, <laughs> So unfortunately, there's nothing I can implement from that. Although I feel like when I have more time, I'll be firing some questions your way because that's so interesting. Anyway, uh, one more question. Yep. And and then I will uh, let you go about your day. But this has been so interesting. In any of your research, have you noticed how supplements can affect energy or sleep or that kind of thing? Like, should people, in your opinion, will I get a better night's sleep, basically, if I'm having stuff like melatonin? Do you, do you have any recommendations with those, those kinds of? So mel- the thing with melatonin, the people love melatonin. They do. People gravitate toward melatonin. People want a sleep supplement, and the very first ingredient they look for is melatonin. 100%. Here's the deal with melatonin. The, the the recommended prescription for melatonin, right, is anywhere between 0.25 milligrams all the way up to five milligrams, right? That's a big, in some cases, six. That's a big range. So people are saying, well, shoot, why don't I just take six, right? The side effect of consuming too much melatonin is that you cannot get, you cannot fall asleep. That's the side effect of too much melatonin. So that's why you have to be very careful with how much melatonin one consumes. Most of these supplements contain one gram to three grams, Mm -hmm. because they're not regulated, of melatonin. Most people don't need melatonin. Before you take melatonin, you should probably go see a sleep physician or sleep expert to say, I'm having trouble with sleep. And then they might recommend, they may, may not recommend melatonin and they may give you a small amount first and then go from there. Okay. So typically, unless you're, you're shifting time zones or anything like that, you probably don't need it. But again, leave that up to an expert to decide. But that's the dangerous thing is like, yeah, too much melatonin, you can't sleep. And that's a problem, right? So it probably only works in like 50% of the population at best. That's so counterintuitive. It's funny because I've never taken melatonin. One of my one of my friends, he does shift work and can't get to the pharmacy. And he's like, I'm not sleeping well. Can, can I go get melatonin? Can you get me melatonin? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing for you. Like, <laughs> like I'm like looking at dosages and trying to decide which one to get. And, and it's just right there, just readily available right on the shelf. So, and shift work is different beast, right? Shift work or changing time zones. There's probably a need for that then, but again, getting the dosage is absolutely key. Going back to the other supplement piece. Yeah. Like for instance, magnesium uh, glycinate is a type of magnesium, which can help bring about a a decent night's sleep, right? L-theanine is an amino acid, which can help kind of unwind you, right? Um, It is what is found in matcha tea, 
right? So you have mm-hmm. caffeine in matcha tea, but you also have L-theanine, which is the combination of those gives people that what they uh, often refer to as like a, a calm focus, right? So uh, yeah, L-theanine and uh, magnesium glycinate are probably the two most benign uh, supplements that can potentially help give you a better night's rest. Awesome. You've given me so much to think about. I'm going to go out and buy a chest strap. I'm going to start meditating. This has all been very good for me. We'll have to check in another time and we'll see what happens when I, because I think that, yeah, for me, like my biggest takeaway, I'm sure everyone will get so much information from this podcast, but my, my biggest one is maybe just chill out a little bit more than I do. (laughs) So I'll add five minutes. I like baby steps. Chronometer, working chronometer is giving me baby steps. You know, I started like tracking my calories, which I've did since I was like 16 and then started macronutrient tracking and now micronutrient tracking. And now I'm like wearing like 12, 12 wearables test in them. And it's been super fun. So thanks so much for being here, Brandon. You've been an amazing source of information and just a lovely guest. So My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a good, good day. You too. Bye.